Predictions are dangerous. We absolutely need more inventory. The Fed doesn't actually have a lot of tools to regulate inflation. That cash has dried up. Wow, is my first thought, Bruce. If both parties don't win, it doesn't happen. The Real Look. Trending News. G'day. Today's Wednesday, September 13th. I'm Bruce Hardy. And I'm Chase Williams. And this is the news you need to know. Well, Chase, uh, this past week, both EXP and Real have adjusted their revenue share programs. And I believe this is in light of the changes that Keller Williams announced. And we announced on this podcast the changes to the profit share program that we offer. What are your thoughts around this? A lot of the moves are similar in nature in some ways, right? In essence, to make either revenue share or profit share more potent and more valuable to those that are participating, right? And that as an opportunity. As you could say for both different programs, the opportunity is available to everyone and yet not everyone takes advantage of them, unfortunately. So certainly these changes will make those that do happy, generally speaking right? I think a couple of the big differences are that you can see where Keller Williams is announcing that the associates themselves made a decision and had a vote to make some changes to the profit share system, because frankly, they're the only ones who can change the system. That's a very democratic process versus these other companies making decisions and deciding and letting those that are affected know. That's a very different way of making some changes, regardless of what the changes are. It indicates a much different culture around making decisions inside of a company that impact stakeholders. I don't think that can be understated. The fact that the stakeholders get a vote, get a say, get to have conversation around it, I think is very, very important versus, hey, we're making an announcement. Here's the differences. And, you know, a lot of people don't know, but in our history, Keller Williams actually, when we went down this path, actually started out with RevShare. But what we discovered was it, it created issues and there were some cultural issues. And I thought it was really interesting when Real announced that they were making changes to ideally allow RevShare to open up a little quicker for their agents. Real brokerage president, Sharon Srivatsa, I don't know, I got that name probably wrong. But what he said that along with the changes comes a need to refocus on sponsor quality and ethics. In fact, the company is currently exploring and working on rolling out a sponsor creed that will help reinforce sponsor responsibility, he said. The hope is to have a more standardized and formal framework that guides sponsors going forward. When I read that, Chase, I'm thinking to myself, ah, that's interesting, right? History repeats itself. Because these people in the RevShare model have to build their own organizations, what you find is those organizations take on a different culture based on the people who are leading it, right? And so it sounds to me like that may be showing up for them. Yeah, I think so, Bruce. And I think there's a razor's edge and maybe where the edge is is a little gray in whether this is the primary offer of some of these companies, right? This opportunity for revenue share, a legitimate opportunity, no doubt. And yet in a commission-based sales industry, I believe that there's a razor's edge of spending all my time, energy, and effort building an organization by recruiting other agents versus making sure that my primary method for income, which is commission on selling real estate, is getting the lion's share of my time, energy, and effort. Those are just two different pathways. I'm not saying one's better than the other or worse. 
I've always felt like at Keller Williams, we have such valuable fundamentals of helping someone build a real estate business and we profit share, right? So it's just a matter of like, what is at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of value? And by the way, again, not right, wrong, or indifferent, but that can definitely lead to a different culture, right? Like we're here to build organizations by recruiting, or we're here to, you know, get so much value to build our real estate businesses that we would by default want to attract others that also want to do that, right? So I don't know, maybe I'm off base there, but it it seems to me that the priority of things are different. And given the state of our industry and the challenges that we're facing in the market, some of these changes are geared towards first year agents at the company. So, hey, if you want more revenue share, come over here and pay less attention to your real estate business and more attention to recruiting agents. That's not going to be a great pathway for a lot of real estate agents. And it may be for some. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The CEO and president of the largest multiple listing service in the Pacific Northwest announced his intent to retire at the end of the year. In fact, Tom Hurdlebrink will step down as leader of Northwest Multiple Listing Service in December after 15 years at the helm. And he's going to be succeeded by Northwest MLS General Counsel, Justin Haig. What's fascinating, and the reason I think that this is worth noting, is Tom has led the Northwest through what has really been an era of change in the real estate industry and certainly in the MLS industry. And by the way, you know, when you look at Northwest MLS, it currently operates 21 service centers around the state of Washington and serves 26 counties. And, you know, some of the notable achievements from his tenure include the merger of three MLS services, conversions to a new public records data system, introduction of two mobile apps and a listing appointment program and streamlining data management. I've always felt that Tom's been a good partner to the Northwest region and open to input. I congratulate him on his retirement. Yeah, it's going to be big changes for the Northwest MLS. Yeah, I think, Bruce, you know, succession is a tricky thing or it can be a tricky thing. Let me just say that. It's good to hear that there was a thorough succession planning process that was led by the board of directors. And of course, Justin Haig is coming from internal to the Northwest MLS as their general counsel. So I think those are some really important steps just to the consistency of what you would expect from an organization that size that certainly does the lion's share of the transactions inside of Washington state. That's no small accomplishment and no small organization. So look forward to the opportunity to meet Justin and get to know him and continue to be solid partners of the Northwest MLS out here in the Northwest region of Keller Williams. Well, Chase, we reported last week that Anywhere Real Estate has gotten into a settlement agreement in the two class action antitrust lawsuits dealing with buyer broker compensation. But what's interesting, it raises some important questions about the future of buyer's agency and how other defendants are viewing the fast approaching trials. Top of mind, of course, is what actually the settlement agreements include, right? Besides an agreement by Anywhere to pay a total of $83.5 million in damages. What are your thoughts there? It adds quite a bit of legitimacy just to the lawsuit itself, not necessarily what they're claiming, but the fact that this has some folks that are concerned about the outcome regardless, particularly anywhere. It'll be interesting to see what some of the other plaintiffs do following this decision. 
it clearly puts listing brokers in a powerful position given any of the potential changes. And we don't know what those will be yet. Steve Murray, our buddy, is quoted in the article giving some uh, scenarios that may play out. But regardless, the reason why I say listing agents are going to be in a powerful position is they're used to asking to be paid, right? So it gives them that skill. They have repetition in going to the kitchen table and asking a seller to compensate them. And that can transfer really well that skill into having a similar conversation with buyers should that change, if that changes, right? Just the practice alone of knowing what you're worth and asking to be paid and knowing what that process looks like, handling any objections that may come up, et cetera. Repetition is the mother of skill and listing agents have been getting repetition there. Also, should that direct more consumers directly to the listing agent, that also puts them in a, in a powerful position. So I do think that regardless of the outcome, Bruce, this illustrates the importance of any broker, buyer broker or listing broker, building the right competency around the right things that allow them to have control over how they're compensated. And what entrepreneur would not want more control over how they're compensated? That's the primary reason a lot of folks get into a commission sales-based business is they want to have control over how much they can earn, right? This might be scary to some, but it just puts the onus back on the professional to make sure that they're able to do that. I thought it was interesting, Steve Berman, the managing partner and co-founder of Hagen's Berman Sobel Shapiro LLP, which represents the plaintiffs in the Merle suit, said the settlement includes significant changes to anywhere's practices relating to the conduct that we have challenged. However, the exact terms of the settlement won't be known until the plaintiffs file a motion to approve the settlement agreement. So it's going to be interesting to see whether or not anywhere is actually going to change how buyer brokers or buyer agents are actually going to be compensated. As you said, right, Steve Murray, he sees three possible outcomes for the lawsuits. Quote, worst case scenario, the broker representing the buyer will have to negotiate their own fee with their client and the seller can no longer be compelled to make a blanket offer of compensation in order to list on the MLS. The second thing that could happen is that more and more buyers will go directly to the listing agent, as you said, in which case, of course, they're clearly unrepresented, right? Because we have representation laws. The third thing that would happen is a whole new kind of buyer brokers arise that charge an hourly flat fee to represent buyers. And I think that's really a fascinating thought. I hadn't gone there in my own mind as I was thinking about this. But what we know is that we could see a fundamental change in the way buyer brokers are compensated. Chase, both you and I have been championing the idea of getting buyer brokerage agreements if you represent buyers. To me, it's like a listing agreement. You wouldn't go out and put your sign in somebody's yard, hang a lockbox and go and spend your money hoping that you find a buyer only to then negotiate your commission at that point. Like you said, we're going to have to develop some new skills. Certainly a lot of us in the industry are going to, if indeed this goes through. What was interesting though is NAR stance, right? And we don't know the other respondents in terms of what they're going to do, but I, I thought this was interesting. The National Association of Realtors, which is also a defendant in both lawsuits, says it's not giving up the fight. NAR's commitment to defend ourselves in court remains unchanged, and we're confident we will prevail in proving the lawfulness of the rules under attack. Pro-competitive, pro-consumer local MLS 
broker marketplaces ensure equity, efficiency, transparency, and market-driven pricing options for both home buyers and sellers. And that was Mantel Williams, NAR's Vice President of Communications. That's par for the course, Bruce, for basically a lobbying organization that represents the members that prefer to be paid in the current way that they're being paid. <laughs> so it might behoove them to you know, demonstrate their strong stance in favor of the realtor, right? If you will. Again, I think oftentimes these cases are pitting, you know, someone against someone else where, you know, there was no friction before actually, and maybe nothing was done wrong before actually. And yet here we are, right? It is NAR's job to advocate for the realtor. And by and large, without doing my own poll, I'm going to guess that a lot of realtors prefer things would continue the way that they do now. And yet there's a question mark out there, Bruce, of if some of these other defendants, Keller Williams being one, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services being another, Remax being another, if we've opened the floodgates to settling. And again, I, I want to make it clear to our listeners that a settlement agreement does not indicate that anybody's done anything wrong. It doesn't even necessarily indicate that any changes specifically will happen. It just indicates the desire of a defendant to avoid an open court lawsuit that costs time, money, energy, and focus. Whether that happens or not, I guess we'll find out here in the coming months. Well, that's the news you need to know. Don't miss this Friday's Northern Lights episode where we'll interview Beth Allen with Keller Williams West Sound in Gig Harbor, Washington. Thanks again for tuning in with us on The Real Look. This podcast is produced by Marissa Frost. Visit kwnwr.com to access the show notes from today's episode. Head over to Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts to subscribe to The Real Look. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with a breakdown of all things real estate.